All right. Okay. Imam, good morning. Wa alaykum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Good morning to you and wa alaykum salam to all the listeners out there. How's it going? How was your fajr? My fajr was good, alhamdulillah. Thank you for joining. No, I couldn't make it, unfortunately. I I was ready. I was up and ready at 6, but uh, my Uber had a 40-minute wait. I don't know why Memphis, uh, the Ubers are so delayed here. But alhamdulillah, inshallah, next time I'll bring a rental. Inshallah, ya rabbal alameen. Who have been with you? Hayakallah. Who, who led the salah this morning? Because it's three imams, so every, every salah is a fight. <laughs> All right, who gets to lead this one? You know what I mean? Okay, so there are, yes, three of us, but there are also three different entities that we serve. So there is the MIC, that's a Muslim Islamic, Memphis Islamic Center. And then there is the Salam Mosque, which is about 15 miles from here. Okay. And then there is PVS, that's Pleasant View School. So we all teach at the um, school. I teach AP Psychology there. And Sheikh Anwar and Sheikh Faqih, they teach Islamic studies. And we go to, we rotate at Salam Masjid as well, and we rotate here at MIC. Oh, mashallah. Okay, I thought it was all three of you just at MIC. So there's a school and then there's another masjid. Right. Okay, mashallah. Is there a specific area that each of you covers? Like this guy, you do the youth, and then this one does the khutab. Well, we try, but mostly I, 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 do, the, I do the counseling. Okay. That's, that, that's, that's my main responsibility here. Okay, do you want to dig yes. into that? What kind of counseling do you do? Well, I do all kinds of counseling. This is actually one of the um, better choices that I made in life. I've made very few good choices in life, <laughs> alhamdulillah, so far. Alhamdulillah. But studying counseling, I would say, is really very high up there. So when I became an imam, I was very young when I became an imam. So we're talking about like 20, 20 24, 25 years ago is when I became an imam. Mashallah. So I was, I was younger. And what has happened is people would come in with all their issues to speak to the imam. But I was, I really did not know what I was doing. I would listen to people. I would, you know, um, talk to people. But I don't think I knew what I was doing. Mm. So I said, well, people, because people trust the imams, which right. is the case in most religious communities. People go to their pastor, they go to their uh, rabbi, you know, they consult with whoever the reverend is. And of course, people come to the imam. So we're trusted people in the community. Trusted is one thing, qualified is something else. <laughs> right. So I think I was trusted, but definitely no qualifications. So I said, well, if people are coming here anyways, I might as well go and study counseling mm. and alhamdulillah it's really really proven to be um, um, a good thing that I did. So you, you have a degree in counseling? Oh yeah, so I do have a degree in counseling. I'm a licensed uh, therapist in the state Mashallah. of California. Okay, so is it is it marriage therapy? Is it personal therapy? Yeah. So what we do as we were called MFTs, marriage and family therapist, mm -hmm. we are allowed and we have the ability to diagnose and treat different mental illnesses. Mm. We're able to treat, you know, anxiety disorders, mood disorders, personality disorders, and and so on. Okay. So is there a specific theme that the meshed has that you're catering towards? Like what kind of cases do you see? We're not very different, you know, from the community outside, the non-Muslim community outside. So we have our fair share of 
anxiety disorders. Mm. We have our fair share of mood and depression disorders. We have our fair share of family-related issues, divorces, and and you name it. We're not we're not different. I think what makes us unique is the cultural competency because there is a lot of culture that takes place that we're not necessarily aware of. So there is the cultural competency. And of course, many times there is a language barrier. So sometimes people, you know what, um, English is not my first language, but I've lived here for so long that I've, my Arabic, you know, I've lost some of my vocabs and the expression. So I want to speak to somebody and I, I want to be able to match and mix my Arabic and English. And it helps that the person is aware of what I'm saying. Mm. So that's a big deal. And of course, there is the religious component into into it. And and counseling is is a setting where it's not just important that you know the language that the person speaks. There is more that that needs to be known that you don't have to spend a lot of energy and time on. A hijabi comes in, you know, she really does not need to say a single word about her hijab. If her hijab is not an issue, why she's coming to counseling? Mm. Versus somewhere else, you know, the counselor may be confused as to why the hijab is there, um, for example. Or as they say, if you speak to people in a language that they understand, you go to their head. If you speak to them in a language that they know, you go to their head and their hearts. Mm. People want to speak in a language that they know, not they just understand. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, comes the Islam part into it. You know, many people, they want to come and see a Muslim counselor because Islam is important to them. Or at least they want to be kept within the Islamic boundaries when it comes to the, when it comes to the treatment, for example. I hear you. The, the part about anxiety disorders, do you, um, you ever get a case where you think, oh, man, this person got a gin inside them? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so we do have... Um, so usually, people who believe that they have a jinn inside them, that's, that, that is more of the, um, not necessarily anxiety disorders, but we're looking into different aspects of what yeah, might be going right. on. But um, yeah, we have people who believe that there is a, um, they're possessed. And remember, as a counselor, I believe whatever the client tells me. I believe them that they believe that they are possessed. Like when they say that they're possessed, they're not making this up. Mm-hmm. They really believe that they are possessed. My job is to meet them where they are. Right. So that's where we begin. We begin with the belief that I acknowledge that this is what they, this is what they believe. Is it religion? That's going to be a different, that's going to be a different story. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, and I, I, we do have a, a class. Um, I teach a course on Islam and psychology, and there is a very specific uh, portion of the class that we've dedicated into when bad theology leads to bad psychology. And that's when we speak about how sometimes people have a misunderstanding, religious misunderstanding, that leads into creating bad psychology. Mm. So... Have you ever had someone tell you, I think I have a gin inside me? Oh, a lot of people. Really? What oh, do you yeah. tell them? A lot of people. What do you do when they... Yeah, we start, we start the treatment plan. We start the treatment plan with them. 
But what's, yeah. the, what's the treatment plan? Well, why do they believe that they have a gene? Are they hearing voices? Are they seeing things? Are they, be, are they, are they um, experiencing sensations without mm. the presence of a stimuli to have these sensations? And most people would, would, you know, would say, yeah, they do hear voices. And, you know, at that point, as a therapist, you are thinking of um, schizophrenia and, you know, yeah. these types of these types of disorders. They're hearing voices, they're, they're seeing things, they're sensing things. So, but like I said, the most important part is meeting the client where they are and not immediately challenge the client. So my yeah. job initially is to make the client feel safe. That's like the number one. I'm not even worried about what diagnosis they have or just making people feel safe, like creating a safe environment for people to just be. Afterwards, a non-judgmental setting. People are going to come and talk about stuff that's embarrassing, that's compromising, stuff that they are remorseful about, that they regret, they feel bad about. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people would come in, and because of my training as a sex therapist, a lot of people come in for pornography addiction. Um, oh, you're a sex therapist? Yes, I'm a sex, I'm a sex therapist. What does that entail? What do you... What are you therapizing? What's the what needs to be remedied in that area? Well, so a sex therapist again is a person that is. So in our case, we my my certification was to be a, a certified sex educator, counselor, and mm. therapist. So you educate about sex and sexuality, and of course, in our case, we do it from an Islamic perspective. So we, again, have a course on Islam and sexology, as well as a course on Islam and psychology. We also have a course on when bad theology leads to bad sexology. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So in, in that sense, we do, again, diagnose and treat sexual disorders. Yeah. And, you know, and, and therapy related to that. So can you give me something? Give me an example. Somebody comes in. Sheikh, I got this issue. My wife is refusing me. Is that what you're getting, or so? So you're talking about um, intimacy-related problems in marriage. Mm -hmm. That is one area, but you're also talking about stuff that that might be going on with the individual. So I give you an example. So one of the most common disorders that we're seeing nowadays is porn-induced erectile dysfunction. Mm. And what that means is that these are a lot of people who have watched lots and lots of porn. So much so that they are unable to get an erection. Wow. Depending on how early they started watching pornography and how long and how intense they have been watching it, sometimes, unfortunately, the damage is irreversible. And what has happened is that you, your, your body, your brain has gotten so used to the stimulation that was taking place by the pornography. The problem with pornography is that in addition to it being absolutely haram, mm -hmm. what it does is that it kills the natural stimulants for a man. Meaning that the presence of a woman, the touch of a woman, is naturally sexually stimulating to a man. Yeah. A woman can touch a man anywhere and can potentially be sexually aroused because your biggest sex organ is... <laughs> You want me to say it or something? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the private part. We'll just say that. How's that? That is actually wrong. 
Oh. You have a second guess. Your hand? I don't know. What? That's strike number two. You've got one last strike left. Uh, the, the biggest sexual organ? Yep. I don't know. Yeah, most people don't. So the biggest sex organ is the skin. Oh, I didn't see that as an organ. I mean, oh, yeah. you didn't. Of no. course you did. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking of a body part. Okay. Skin is a body part as well. Okay, okay. So okay. skin, that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah. the biggest sex organ is the skin. So a man can be touched by a woman. A woman can be touched by a man. Not necessarily in what we would deem the private parts to be sexually aroused. You can touch somebody's cheeks and they would be sexually aroused. You can We're talking hold, about these, these cheeks. These. I'm talking about this, yes, the, the cheeks, okay. yeah, yeah. On, on the side of your face. Okay. You, can, you can be touching somebody's hands and you would be sexually aroused, especially if you have interest in that person. Mm -hmm. So this is what we call like natural stimulations. Sometimes you don't even have to touch and you would be naturally aroused as a man. Of course, remember, we're not... We're not um, promoting this behavior. Yeah. We're just saying that, look, naturally this is, giving an example of what a natural stimulant is. So what pornography does is that eventually it kills this natural stimulants mm. in you, where being touched does not arouse you. Seeing a woman does not arouse you. Because you've watched so much porn, and the idea of novelty and continuously looking at something else that has just really killed the natural stimulants with you. So you asked me about cases that I've seen. One case was sad case. A woman called me and she said, look, my husband is really addicted to pornography. There is nothing that I can do to compete with the girls that he sees, um, you know, on his porn. Yeah. I can lose weight. I can change the color of my hair. I can dress up. There is just really nothing that I can do to my husband to stimulate or excite my husband sexually. Wow. So she said that uh, what he does now is he will have his laptop next to him in bed, watch porn, be aroused by porn, and then come, you know, and be God with his wife. damn, what the hell? Exactly, exactly. Holy and that's like, that's a really, really sad situation. Right. Because that's not, that's not natural. Of that course, That is absolutely yeah. not natural. And it's not, it's not good for the, for, the, uh, for the wife either. It's very unfair and it's not healthy. So this is what porn does to people. So as a sex therapist, I can either be dealing with that individual, a young man. Most, I say, most consumers of porn are young men. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's women. But the majority are men. So I have these young men. They can, they can come either as individuals or sometimes you have got couples who are suffering in the bedroom because the man has had, you know, uh, porn addiction. Mm. So erectile, porn-induced erectile dysfunction is the most common diagnosis that we are seeing nowadays in so intimate relationships. Just a quick question. Erectile dysfunction... Just, just so I'm like clear on the on the on what this means. This means that he cannot be sexually aroused. Yeah. So erectile dysfunction is in reference to what happens to the man's penis as a result of being sexually aroused. Are okay. we supposed? Can we say that? I hope so. Let's see what happens. 
because <laughs> I know you you've had the reputation there. But, um, <laughs> we'll see what happens on YouTube. Yeah. So so basically, what happens is think of the the process of erection is a hydraulic process. A man gets excited, the body responds, blood flows into the penis. We have an erection. That's you know the basic mechanism of it. And you become aroused either by fantasizing. We had, um, you know, we do also um, uh, the difference between animal sex and human sex. Mm. So humans have the ability to fantasize and become sexually aroused because of their fantasies mm. or be naturally stimulated. And both you have, you know, an erection that takes place. An exception would also be having a morning erection for men. You wake up in the morning at 3 a.m. and, you know, <laughs> what is going on? And that process starts with us when we are one month old. Mm. So if you ever have a child and, you know, you're cleaning them or, you know, all of a sudden you just realize that this is what's going on. That is the body of just making sure that there is maintenance that is that is taking place. Mm. So there are different reasons as to why people specifically men are unable to have an erection. So within sexual disorders regarding men, erectile dysfunction is the most common. And we get it either because of age, you know, the older we get, you know, our sexual energy and abilities, they go down. We get it sometimes because of medical related reasons, such as diabetes, for example, cardiovascular diseases, that can have an impact on a man's ability to have an erection. Sometimes we may be taking certain types of medications that can um, have a side effect, and one of their side effects is a man becoming unable to have an erection. And sometimes it can be environmental reasons, such as obesity, um, lifestyle, such as smoking, alcoholism, mm. that's very common. And sometimes the, the issues can also be mental, such as anxiety and depression. They would have an impact on a man's ability to have an erection. What we are seeing now is this, this happens all the time. Yeah. Like all the time. Like a good number of men, you know, they just it's something that we, we go through at some point in our lives. No shame about it. There is, you know, you, you're older, yeah. you're diabetic, you're obese, especially, you know, um, belly fat, for example, um, cardiovascular related issues. So these are all, these are all issues that we can go through. Sometimes the relationship is not doing well at home and you just no longer have an interest in each other because the relationship is really bad. So mm. we would see that sex suffers as a result. Sometimes after the birth of a child, also intimacy within couples suffers as a result of that. So when we say porn-induced erectile dysfunction, it is not medication that they're taking. It's not diabetes that they have. They're not old. We're talking about men in their early to mid-20s. Like this is supposed to be your sexual peak. Yeah. Like in your late teens, what, 14, 15, you know, into your uh, late 20s, like this is your absolute sexual peak. Right. And during this time, if there is like really no um, medical reason, um, psychological reason, and what we're seeing is, unfortunately, it is the consumption of pornography 
that is causing the erectile dysfunction. And you know, for the listeners out there, you know, sometimes we we um, we do not know we do not know the consequences of this behavior until it's too late. If you continuously watch pornography to the point where you are no longer able to get an erection, and not only that, there is going to be a point where the damage is so irreversible that no matter how much porn you watch, no matter how much Viagra and Cialis you take, you're not going to get an erection. And these two things are like stuff that stops erectile dysfunction that you just mentioned. The Cialis and the Viagra. Viagra. Yeah. You know, these are medications that are given to boost a man's ability to have an erection. Mm. You know, and and they help. You know, because of age or other issues, you can. You know, there is medicinal help. What I'm saying is that the damage in these cases is so uh, deep and intense that right. even with medication, there is really nothing that can be done about it, and that is why. If you work in the porn industry, like let's say you're a cameraman in the porn industry, you have to sign a waiver, a consent form, that says that within two months of you being in the industry, you will lose your ability to have an erection. No way. Yes. Wow. Why you would they take the si- job? That's you know, and, and, and again, you know, for, for many people out there say, man, this will be like the best job, man. Just be watching people <laughs> doing this. Oh, no, you'll be watching people, and it's only exciting for the first 15 minutes. Yeah. And then afterwards, you just get used to it. You get so used to it that there is none of it will ever excite you again. That's so crazy. So you would have to sign that waiver saying, I will not be able to get, I know that I will not be able to get an erection, you know what, two months after, you know, two months working in this place. That's crazy. And that's why the dean is so beautiful, you know. And the thing about, we have a, a, a course on, you know, the Quran and, and, um, and sexuality because there are at least over 84 sexual references in the Quran. And most people think that the, the Quran's approach to sex and sexuality is haram and halal. And, you know, to people it's like, can't do anything before marriage, can't do anything during marriage unless it's your spouse. <laughs> to them, like, that's like the teaching of sex and sexuality in Islam. Yeah. That's part of it, but that's not everything in it like when the quran tells people to lower their gaze it's not just about moral purity it's not just about objectification of the of the other Mm. but there is also something that's it actually it it is in your best interest to lower your gaze because if you don't eventually you become hyper you know nowadays what what happens is you know people who go to um, universities, colleges, especially summertime, people, especially a good number of men, you become hypersexualized. Okay? Mm. You're just stimulated all the time. And eventually just grows old because you've just been exposed to it so much that it is messing up with your natural stimulants. The presence of a woman is really beautiful, but it's not a big deal to many people. You know, seeing less clothed women is stimulating. But not so to many people because, you know, I've seen it so many times. I've gotten so used to it. So the dean tells you to lower your gaze. It is in your best interest that you lower your gaze. Yeah, for sure. Can, can you step back, though, to the, the sexual references in the Quran? Um, because 
one thing that stands out to me, especially in that regard, is that it doesn't say in Quran like um, it doesn't say uh, uh, like it doesn't it doesn't say man's desire for woman is like a bad thing. Or it says like right, it says zuyina linas, right? So it says beautified for men their their lust for woman, right? So it just isn't that an interesting phrase there? I just thought that was interesting that it says that it's a beautiful thing. It just needs to be catered in the right channel. So when you read the Quran, there are two things. Sex is both celebrated and regulated. And then the Quran is very critical um, of those who over-regulate and those who over-celebrate. Mm. So celebration and regulation. And, and you know, the way that the, 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 the Quran speaks about sex and sexuality. This is, this is one of my favorite courses to teach. <laughs> because I really, I really do, you know, yeah. you know, just uh, as somebody told me once, he said, man, if you ever want to talk to Muslims and you want them to listen attentively, talk either about sex or the jinn. And people just like <laughs> be absolutely quiet, you know, yeah. listening to you. It's fascinating. It's, it's a human. It's um, even though sex is not seen as a need, but it is a motive. Mm. It's not a need like food. It yeah. is a it is a motive. We are sexually motivated beings. That is natural. And the Quran celebrates this, you know, constantly referring to this idea of azwaj. One beautiful reference you find in Surah Al-Ma'idah, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, you know, praises rabbis, okay? Uh, uh, sorry, not rabbis, monks, okay? Mm. ذلك بأن فيهم قسيسين ورهبانا. He said that the those the, the closest to us in affinity are those who say that they are Christians mm. because amongst them are the uh, ministers and the rabbi and and the and, um, the monks and the monks. Okay. وأنهم لا يستكبرون. And these are people who are not arrogant. Yeah. And then it speaks about them. And then few verses down, all of the sudden the Quran does what we call like a sudden shift. To the reader, it's considered the sudden shift. Some people are critical of the Quran and they say that the Quran is an incoherent book because it jumps around a lot. And even as a reader of the Quran, you'll be reading and then all of a the sudden there is just what we would say sharp shift in like topics. It'll be talking about something and then all of a the sudden it jumps into Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu la tuharrimu tayyibati ma ahallallahu lakum. O ye who believe do not consider to be illegal the goods that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created for you. Because in the previous verse, the Quran was praising the monks because of this concept of rahbaniya, mm. uh, celibacy. Now the Quran says, Celibacy is something that they have invented that we've never prescribed upon them. Mm. So what the Quran does is that it praises them but it's saying that even though we've praised them, you know, the idea of somebody is so devout that they say that even when it comes to my own desires, I will deny myself because I just want to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Mm. So it, it, it is telling about somebody. So the Quran immediately then as a precaution and goes, do not deem illegal the good wholesome things that Allah has made legal for you. And the first reference that we find in the Quran regarding sex and sexuality is that sex is considered something to be tayyib, it's good, it's wholesome. Allah has created it for you. 
So we are invited to celebrate sex and sexuality and also the, the verse that you referenced in Surah Al-Imran, Zuyyana Lil-Nas. Okay. Now, the Quran says celebrate, but do not over-celebrate. Regulate, but do not over-regulate. It got to the point, and when we do, we also do, we look into the history of sex and sexuality, uh, especially when it comes to religion in the, uh, in the course. I'm sorry I keep talking about the course like I'm no, advertising no, <laughs> for, the, for the course. But in, in that, there is, there is a part where we speak about the history of um, sexuality. Mm. And then there is a point where in Christianity, in the Catholic Church, it was deemed that even a sexual thought, you know, if you think it in your, in your heart, then you have already committed adultery. Oh, wow. You know, they, they, in, in, the, in the church, they would start by saying that, you know what, uh, for any priest that had slept um, the night before with his wife, they cannot attend Mass. And then it will say that, you know what, for anybody who wants to become a priest, they can no longer be married. And they just, they just kept regulating, regulating, and restricting, so much so that it said that even if you think it in your head, you have already committed adultery. Well, what they're saying is that sex is intrinsically evil, like it's intrinsically evil. And the only reason we have it is so that we, you know, reproduce. Well, that's problematic. Even if thinking about it is illegal because it's intrinsically bad, what do you do? And then all of the sudden, they literally came up with devices that men would wear around their private parts. You would literally have, you know, we've got the images that we show in the class about, you know, it's something that they call a chastity belt. Oh. Uh, that belt would, you know, you, you would insert your private part as a man there. And, you know, the slightest, you know, erection would expose your private part to needles. Um, oh, my God. So that you go back to your state of, you know, prior to, so you oh have these God. issues or they would, you know, women would, would, would tie these belts around themselves and they would throw away the key or men. And it just gets to the point where because you were made to feel so guilty for even having sexual thoughts, mm. which is really bad. You become a guilt motivated individual and that is not healthy. So the Quran is very critical of this type of approach to sex and sexuality. Sexuality, sex is tayyib, it's good, it's wholesome. Mm. What the Quran says is you need to put this in the correct channel. You know, channelize your sexual power and energy into something that is into something that is good. So in the Quran, sex is um, is celebrated. And um, you know. So, so that's when I say that, you know what, when bad, when bad theology leads to bad sexology, you have, you have this. In our own community sometimes, and unfortunately, we, we, have, we have an issue that I don't think we are aware of how much it's impacting us. Mm. If you ask the average person, when is a young man, you know, sexually ready? When I'm saying sexually ready, like physically sexually ready 14 15 would you say yeah i think that's 
Sounds about 14, right. 14, High school, yeah. What is the average age that Muslim men get married? Oh, that's like maybe 25, 26. 26, 27, 28. Yeah. Well, if, if I am ready to be sexually active at the age of 14, but I can only get married at the age of 28, what happens to the 14 years in between? That's what we call 14 years of hell. Yeah. So, I mean, but, okay, so I, I see where you're going with this. I'm wondering, though, is the solution to take our concept of marriage, which we consider something that you do post-grad when you have a degree, when you can afford your own living in your own house and whatnot, and you can take care of a wife and all that good stuff. Should you take that concept and make it smaller and say, no, 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 we don't need to do it like that. All we need is two witnesses and a mahar. They can be in a relationship together. They don't have to be in their own house. They can still be in high school and they can get married. But doesn't that seem like, if we did it that way, doesn't that seem like you're, you're trivializing marriage? Um, I don't think we are aware of how big the problem is. So you're jumping into the solution and you've already come up with a solution and yeah, you've yeah. already discredited the solution that no, you I'm just, just came saying. up with. Yeah, yeah, I'm just saying. Yeah. Like, yeah. So now I'm looking into this kid who is 14 and is able to only get married when they're 28, 14 years later. Mm -hmm. I'm worried about the next 14 years for this kid. I mean, think about it, okay? And, and, and please, before you blast me, please, please <laughs> hear, what I am, hear what I am proposing here. If you have a non-practicing Muslim or a non-Muslim, they were ready to be sexually active at the age of 15, and they became sexually active at the age of 15. And then you have a Muslim who decided that they're going to keep their chastity and save themselves until they are married. Mm. They get married at the age of 28, 30, yes. 15 years, 14 years later. The people who decided to be sexually active at the age of 15, the non-practicing Muslim or the non-Muslim, are closer to fitrah than the person that decided to wait until they are 30 years old to be sexually active. Mm, that's a good point. Remember, yeah, we are saying that they're closer to fitrah. We disagree with the way that they decided to practice their sexual energy. Can you define fitrah for this guy? Just natural inclinations. Okay. okay. They're closer to nature than this person that decided to wait until they're 30. Now, remember, we commend this person for their desire to keep their chastity. But what we're saying is that this is not natural. Yeah. Especially given where we are, the time that we are in, this is not natural. So what does the person do between now and 15 years later? And this is not like, you know what, you're fasting, you know, it's just like a matter of few hours and then you will break your fast. Yeah. This is not like, you know what, just wait until the end of this semester and you know what, you will yeah. get this. No, this is wait until you are 28, 14, 15 years later before you do this. So in between, what does this person do? You create a lot of young people who are sexually frustrated. Yeah. What does that mean? You have got somebody who sees everything around him sexualized in the classroom, everywhere you go. Sex is in your face all over the place, mm -hmm. okay? 
And then this person is asked, you can't, you can't, have, any, uh, you can't have any of this. Well, because it's haram, chances are the person becomes, uh, because now what we, what we teach is just suppression. Okay? Yeah. Usually suppression leads to anger, anger leads to resentment, and then the person becomes conflicted. It's like on the one hand, I want to be a good Muslim, but on the other hand, I also have my own needs. But then, you know what? Maybe watching porn is a lesser evil than this. Mm. But then when I watch porn, I feel so guilty. It's like I'll be watching porn, and as I am watching it, I'm already feeling guilty. So I am neither enjoying the porn that I am watching, nor am I enjoying being a good Muslim. This is a very, very depressed person. Right, right. And what I do nowadays is when I have young people come in, you know, seeing me, you know, you, you screen people and you ask people different questions. And then one of the questions that I ask is, what is your porn consumption like? I don't ask whether you watch porn or not. I say, you know, given your age, the average person your age, 18, 19, watches porn about five to seven times a week. Mm. Would you say you are within that average? And 90% of the time, people would say maybe a little more. Wow. Okay. I have had people who call and say that Ramadan is their toughest time. That's like when they are depressed most. Because during the daytime, they are unable to watch their porn or they watch their porn and then they really, really feel guilty because they just broke their fast. Wow. And from there on, you know, the ramifications and the consequences are so unbelievably great. And there is this correlation between consumption of pornography and depression. Mm. Especially really? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, especially amongst... I mean, think about it. Here you are, you know, you just finished watching porn and you feel so guilty. Remember, here is, here is the thing about, about, um, about depression. So we usually feel guilty due to a behavior. Okay? I feel guilty because I did something bad. Well, what happens eventually then is that guilt becomes so deep that it's no longer just guilt towards the behavior. Now I start formulating thoughts about myself. So now, instead of me saying that what I did is bad, now I'm thinking, I am bad. Well, that leads into depression, which leads into more guilt, which leads into more feelings of shame, which leads into more depression, leading into more guilt, more shame, and then this, the, the circle becomes a very vicious circle. Yeah. Okay. So now, what do you do? What do you do between now and 15 years from there on? So this kid will say, oh, you know what? I, I, I watch porn and I feel such a hypocrite when I go to the masjid, I stop going to the masjid. I watch porn, but I feel such a hypocrite when I go to Jum'ah, I've decided like, man, what good is my Jum'ah? I feel so hypocrite that I'll be doing my prayers, my salah, but like, man, I've just been watching porn. It's like, what good is my prayers? So they abandon salah now. Wow. So they abandon the masjid, they abandon salah. And, you know, I didn't even, it's like, I didn't pray Fajr, so what good is my dhuhr? I didn't pray all day long, why would I pray Isha now? I didn't pray all week long, why would I go to Jum'ah? 
I don't even pray. Why would I fast? Mm. And you just there on. And you know, this idea of al-ma'asi barid al-kufr, you know, the accumulations of sins will ultimately deliver us to disbelief. Mm. And that is the sad part. So before we even think of solutions, I, I really, really want people to just really understand how intense and deep this problem this problem is. Right. We're not even talking about people just feeling emotionally starved. You know, there is a point where I need, a, as a man, I need a woman in my life. Mm. There is a point where a woman needs a man in her life. There is something about being male that can only come out in the presence of a female. Mm. There is something about femininity that can only be explored in the presence of a man. We're not just talking about sex and sexuality. Just being in the presence of a woman for a man or being in the presence of a man of, for a woman, that in itself, we are incomplete without one another. And you don't get to see that. And you look around, your friends, your classmates, everybody's got somebody except me. Everybody's going out with somebody except me. Everybody has somebody towards whom they can direct and, and, and channel their sexual energy, their emotional energy. They, that's reciprocated and given to, towards each. And none of this is I am getting. And yeah. I'm told that, you know, I've got to wait for the next 15 years for me to do that. Remember, commendable, but not advisable. Close to that sense of fitrah, nature, but you're doing it the wrong way. And, and to me, uh, you know, in between, a, a lot of people are conflicted. A lot of people are depressed. A lot of people are resentful because, because of that. I don't really think we understand how deep that problem is. So it's very common nowadays for my young clients, men and women, I ask them, um, if they're sexually active. Oh, Sheikh, I mean, you know, and, um, and what happened is that, look, I, j I just can't take it. I've had, you know, young, you know, practicing good Muslim girls who would be telling me that, look, there is really, I, I just can't help it. Or young boys would say, I, I can't really, I can't really help it. It's just all over the place. And I, it's, you can reject these notions, but you cannot you cannot escape them. So what's our solution? Because you were going to propose one. I was waiting for it. Unfortunately, the solutions that I propose are not going to be solutions that are going to be appreciated. That's okay. Let's hear it. Accepted by the... Um, Let's hear it. By the masses. Well, I mean, what, I mean the, the most obvious thing would be what you just proposed. Maybe we ought to let young people get married sooner. <coughs> That's, that's a good solution on paper. So I'm 18 years old, and I come and I propose to your daughter. First thing you're going to ask is what? Do you have a job? Right, exactly. Can you support a family? Do you have a degree? And uh, the answer is no. So what are you going to do? You're not ready. Yeah. You're not ready. At 18, you're not ready. Okay. I would say we don't need wait until we're 28 and 30. By the way, 28 and 30 is very optimistic. We're talking about in the, in the U.S. That may be a possibility. I mean, in some of the Muslim countries, you know, I know that in the Middle East in some areas, men are getting married at the age of 35. Wow. That is really sad. That's a very, very sad story. 
you know, there is, um, you're talking about, you know what, girls waiting until they're, you know what, late 30s. Um, and that's really sad. You know, because people, people genuinely do want to get married. They really do. And they really want to, to honor their deen as well. They want to do it the right way. Yeah. And, um, and, and that, needs, that needs help. So definitely there is something about minimizing that 28 and 30. I believe that we can really, really bring it down. Appreciate uh, parents who tell their kids, especially if parents who can afford it. Say, look, son, if you find somebody and you're really interested, we will support you. You know, you continue going to your school. We will, you know, do whatever it takes to get you ready and, you know, support you to have a, to have a wife. Yeah. Um, some people would suggest the idea of, you know, what about do people really need to move in together? Do they have to be living together? Maybe they can get married, be together until they, until they, you know, they're able to be on their own. Yeah. Okay. Again, these are all good solutions, but they remain to be on. They are good on paper. They're not necessarily practical solutions that people will will are willing to explore. However, giving people that option, I think, is a good place to start. I know people who I I have done kitabs for people who are seventeen and sixteen. Wow. The parents came in and they say, you know what, this is my son, and you know. And this is my daughter, and you know what? We want them to get married with the understanding that we want them to have a halal relationship. They've committed to each other, and um, we just, you know, make sure that they don't get pregnant right now. And uh, one day, inshallah, they will be able to move and be on their and be on their own. Yeah, that's really that's really nice. Mashallah, tabarakallah, that people have done this. I know people who have, you know, big places. I particularly know this brother. He noticed a young brother in the community. He said, look, I really like you. I have my daughter. Why don't you come and meet? And if you agree, you can move in with us wow. until you are able to be on your own. 19-year-old kid got married to his 17-year-old daughter. He moved in with them, lived there for a few years. They finished their schooling. They got their own place. They've got their kids right now. Mashallah. These are beautiful, beautiful examples. Like proposing this as... These are ways to help our, you know, young brothers and sisters, you know, cope with what is what is happening. Remember, we and 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 this is not just about you know sexual activity. We're talking about making sure that you know there is compatibility that is taking place in the process. That these are good people. You know, they have a similar commitment to the dean um, as well. This is not just facilitating for sex. Yeah, that's yeah. not what I'm proposing. I am proposing facilitating for healthy relationships early on because that just helps people from going on the wrong on the wrong path. Yeah. So so just to challenge this proposal a little bit, and uh, it sounds like a good a good proposal. Uh, I'm just wondering, in terms of someone that would say, well, if you delay it, if you require a large mahar. If you require certain things like a qa'a for the wedding, you know, a big ballroom and all that stuff, it puts a certain level of commitment on the man's part and it sifts out all the people with bad intentions. So how do you avoid in your proposal people with bad intentions that don't want a marriage? They just want... Okay, so I performed a marriage before 
hmm. where the cost of the marriage, wallahi, I think was over $300,000. Just the cost of the marriage. Oh my God. It was at the Ritz-Carlton overlooking the ocean. It was one of the most beautiful marriages I have seen. Ended up getting divorced. Yeah, I mean, that happens. <laughs> okay. So, so yeah. So, you want a commitment. You're, you're thinking that financial commitment is the only way to vet out, you know, um, those who are serious and those who are bad intentions. Or many people would don't mind, you know, paying for the qa'a, for the hole and all that stuff. And they still have bad intentions. Mm. Okay. So that's not it. And, and that's where we propose premarital counseling as well. I actually have a course called Before You Say I Do. And that's where you get to know, you know, finding Mr. Right and avoiding Mr. Wrong type of, um, of an approach. So like I said, this is not just to facilitate for sex. Yeah. This is to facilitate for healthy, for healthy relationships. Of course, you want to take also in consideration the level of maturity. Because you're 18 and you're a stud, that does not qualify you, right, right. you know, to be married. We're also looking for a certain level of maturity. Right. You could be 25 and 28 and you're still addicted to video games and all you want to do <laughs> is, you know, play Fortnite and you yeah. know, be on. To me, it's like, it doesn't matter how, you know. So to me, it's like looking for maturity, looking for to facilitate for 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 these things and then mm. of course there is also the proposal of um this is where people get the um, chastity belt <laughs> 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 the chastity belt is we don't have a chastity belt uh-huh. but we have fasting because in the hadith the prophet sallallahu he proposed that people who he said if you are able to support a wife get married mm. if you are unable to support a wife then engage in fasting for that will be, you know, your your temporary castration. Okay. Mm. It's cast, it's a form of it's a it's it's a form of um castration, but it's a temporary it's a temporary one and it is self imposed type of castration. Mm. And the point here is um this is what we call uh, finding the pleasure of self discipline and self control. Mm. See, the way that we teach now, it's like haram, but we really don't teach that there is a lot of pleasure in self-discipline. Mm. Like, literally, a lot of pleasure in self-discipline. We don't teach that. You know? and, and, that's, and that's something that is left out when we, talk about these, when we talk about these things. The other proposal, of course, is polygyny. That is having, you know what, um, multiple wives. That is a um, another way um, as well. Some people are more ready than others. They have the ability, and um, and that's another proposal that you know that is being put out there. And unfortunately, you know, within our Muslim community, um, polygyny, even though it's halal, and 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 I'm not just going to get. Heat for this, but <laughs> I'm literally waiting for white people to start proposing polygyny as an option mm. so that the Muslims can actually join. Even though it's halal, but right now it's not something that is uh, encouraged. Muslims are actually nowadays are kinder. 
to people coming out as homosexuals than they are to people coming out as you know multiple yeah that's crazy it is it is the craziest of crazy so it is the craziest of crazy and and how does this where does polygyny fit into what you're proposing because we're talking about relieving you know the the crisis of of uh, the sexual crisis in the muslim community how does polygyny solve that again you have got a lot of our sisters who are actually open to this type of arrangement oh you're saying there are women that can't find a husband so they marry men that are already married that solves that yeah and and, and remember we're not we're not holding that against these women yeah, yeah i mean i i can tell you and and good number of imams we receive these types of phone calls all the time and when i say all the time i'm talking about all the time mm. women would be saying sheikh i really I, I had, you know, um, sister calling and she said, Sheikh, I'm 34. My biological clock is ticking. There is, I am high achiever. I professionally, I am doing excellent. Financially, I'm very independent. Academically, I've got really to where I wanted to be. But my desire in life is to be a mother. I really, really want to be a, a mother. And my biological clock is, is ticking. Mm. I'm a committed Muslim woman. I don't want to do anything that is um, that is haram. I just want to be a mother. Sheikh, I am open to any arrangement. Remember, open to any arrangement is not an invitation that I'll take any Joe and Mo. Yeah, She's yeah. saying that I am open to any arrangement that is halal. Preferably, if I can be an only wife, that would be my preference. But I don't mind being a co-wife. I don't think that we have created enough social validation for these proposals to be taking place because immediately she is going to be accused as a, a husband uh, stealer mm. a husband is going to be accused as being a womanizer and a lot of people are resorting to having these relationships privately they're not they're not publicizing it mm. because we have not created enough social acceptance for it a person can come out as homosexual in the Muslim community and people will be congratulating them. You have got my support. I'm not judging you. You know what? Who knows? Allah is the only one that judges and all that. Um, don't have really socially acceptable words to tell you how I feel about these things. Mm. But uh, you can't really be celebrating this and at the same time looking down upon people who choose to do these things. Both brothers and sisters mm. and to me you know that's like the sad part it's almost like the warning that the prophet wasallam said there will be a time when people are going to be quiet neither commanding the good nor forbidding the evil and then there will be a time where people will publicly command they they will stop people from doing good encourage people to do evil and sometimes people will even uh, actively encourage stopping the good and actively encourage doing the evil. Every time you wave that flag, you're encouraging evil. You're really encouraging people. Every time you express support for somebody coming out, you are encouraging evil. Mm. I'm not saying be rude, but be quiet. That's the least that you can do. Shut the hell up. <laughs> you really don't need to be out there 
I, I remember when the Supreme Court came up with the decision that, you know what, homosexuals can get married. I remember it was during Ramadan. Mm. And I remember they gave the khatib Allah. I, remember, I was like crying. I said, look, all these Muslims waving, you know, on Facebook. Facebook was popular back then. You know, be waving flags. And you know what, today we won and love, love, what is it? Love, um, love won and all. To me, it's like, are you serious? Are you serious? I, you know, and that's what I'm saying. Unfortunately, I am just waiting for polygyny to become popular, you know, popularized mm. by white people. Because remember, our right and wrong is um, is popular culture. So if somebody does it and they accept it, then maybe we'll say, oh, you know what? In Islam, it's always been halal. That's that's what we're waiting for. There, there are some people, like famous people, that openly talk about open relationships on Twitter. Like they'll say, yeah, we're in a relationship, but we're both open, yeah. meaning they both go to other partners and yeah. neither mind. Yeah. So that's that's become normal, I think. Nobody judges people for open relationships. I don't know if they have a nor- normalization yet of committed polygyny relationships, though. It's still something that people look down upon. I, I know it's it's the Mormon thing, so that people still mock the Mormons for it. So. Oh, I, I, I'm, and I'm telling you, it's a, that's why I it's it's really really unfortunate. That's why. When it becomes popular, the same Muslims will jump and say, oh, you know, in Islam, it, for the past 1400 years, it's always been, you know. I had a, um, one of the strangest fatwas that I got in, in, in terms of, um, you know, doing what I do was um, somebody was invited to Aqiqah. Aqiqah is a celebration of a newborn mm. child. And he said that the sister actually went to the sperm bank and just got herself pregnant from the sperm bank. And now she has a baby. And Oh, wow. They're throwing okay. aqiqa for the baby. So there's no husband in the picture? There's no husband in the picture. There's not like a husband that can't have a kid? No, 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 no. And so she got a fetal yeah, Even then you, you, you can't do that. But okay. this is the person that really, what's going on? Well, I'm 38. Biological clock is ticking. I have very limited number of eggs left in me. And there was no way I was not going to be a mother. Why don't you get married? Well, I tried that once. It didn't work out. And by the time I meet this Muslim guy, and I get, that's just going to be too long. I, I cannot afford, I cannot afford to do that. So what did wow. she do? She went and she um, got herself, you know, pregnant. she went to the sperm and got pregnant. Yeah. Uh, now, check this out. People say, well, you know what, who are we to judge? She was under a lot of pressure. And you know what, who knows? Right now, let's just take care of the baby. Allahu alam what her intentions were. We don't know about the mental state that she was in. Look, man, I am all for kindness. Do not mistake kindness for giving legitimacy to a wrong action. Yeah. If that same woman was to get pregnant... In a secret marriage, a private marriage, by somebody who was already pregnant, or she would have been chewed. She would have been, despite the fact that is a halal relationship, people would just be chewing her up, left and right. But this, I mean, who are we to judge? You know what, just leave it to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's like misplaced compassion that only there is really no, um, there is... Never mind. I hear you. 
you know, there's uh, speaking of, of fatwas, there there's a uh, when we were talking about proposals and, and options, there's one you didn't mention, hmm. which is uh, <laughs> it was a phenomenon in, in one point in time uh, about temporary marriage yep. that people marry for the intention of divorce. Yep. And there was a fatwa given to a group of students that were traveling to the U.S. or whatever. Have you heard of this? Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Do you want to dig into that? How do you? What's your perspective on these folks that do temporary all marriage? Right. So in all seriousness, so remember that mut'a marriage, temporary marriage, is something that is openly accepted in Shia theology. Mm. In Sunni theology, it is a debated issue. However, with the majority of scholars saying that mut'a marriage was initially acceptable, but later on prohibited. In Sunni theology, agreed upon that somebody who is guilty of mut'a, temporary marriage, is not to be punished for adultery. And then they say, because there is the possibility that it is halal. Mm. Or at least the possibility that this person deemed that relationship to be, um, um, to be halal. So that is something that I think needs to be looked into. I really believe that this is something that needs to be revisited and looked into. And then there is what you propose or the fatwa that was given. And that is, can a person marry with the intention of divorce? Where a man marries a woman intending to divorce her. Um, uh, knowing that this is not going to be until death do us apart. Mm. Okay. That is, that's a form of deception. Yeah. Okay. Now, people can get married and they don't say that. They just say, look, I, I know for a fact, I have performed many of these relationships where people just come and say, you know, Sheikh, um, we're just going to get married right now. And I say, well, how well do you know each other? Or oh, we're in the process of getting to know each other. And you get the sense that these are people who are there because they don't want to do something that's haram. Mm. My job as an imam is to facilitate for halal. Especially when I know that the people are about to do something and they came in with the intention of giving legitimacy to this relationship. My job is to facilitate for that which is halal. Mm. Now, I know that many people would, would disagree with this, um, with this approach. My job is to facilitate for halal. That is really, that is really my job. Um, I have had many people who say, look, right now, we don't know where I'm going. She doesn't know where she's going. We're just going to leave it up to, you know, whatever, whatever happens. But for right now, we are together. I have performed marriages where people really got married out of con convenience. Um, sister called and said, Sheikh, I really cannot afford a full-time husband right now. I'm a single mom. I have my career. I really, really want to look after my children. I don't have time for a full-time husband, but I'm a committed Muslim woman. I really, I just want, I just want an arrangement that works for me. I, I preferably, I don't want somebody living in with me. I really want to look after my kids. And, and, and to me, these are my heroes because these are people who really want to commit to the deen. And as long as the arrangements are halal, they're saying that this is really what we want. We want something halal. And remember, these people are not just out there to be sexually active. Mm. They're looking for somebody who's good, 
somebody who's responsible, somebody who's mature, somebody that they feel compatibility with. Sex is part of it, but it's not everything. Everything is not about, about it. So I don't want to give the impression that these people are just there for the physical joy of a, of a relationship. Mm. I'll be saying, look, I want somebody that I can talk to, that I feel intellectually stimulated by, somebody that can offer me support, somebody that can just, you know what, I can just by the end of the day talk about how my week was, how my day was. I can talk about my frustration, get advice from, get guidance from. But for right now, I just cannot afford a full-time person in my life. Alhamdulillah. I did the marriage for people, and they meet halfway. You know, he is a single dad with kids. We've got his own issues going on. She's a single mom somewhere else. And you know what? Once every two or three months, they, they meet whenever, whenever possible. Mm. These are the arrangements that are working for people. Alhamdulillah. As long as, as long as it's halal, it is halal. And that is the beauty of the deen. The deen does not have a specific way of how you handle your marriage. Now, generally speaking, ideally, we would want people to be living together, be in the same place, father the same kids, and that's all beautiful. But not everybody is, is you know, they have the same circumstances. The dean is willing to facilitate for whatever different circumstances there are out there for people. And as long as it's halal, this is really what matters. Yeah. Uh, so you said this is something we should look into. This is something that we should look at with the lens of it's halal, not the temporary marriage, or not not the the marriage for, uh, I don't know how to put it, but the marriage where there's people not exactly living together. But the other thing you said was, this is something we should look into, talking about temporary marriage. Do you mean that we should look at it with the lens of this is something that should be looked at as halal in light of certain circumstances? Is that what you're saying? You're trying to put me in trouble here. No, no, I want to hear what you honestly think. That's what this is for. I, I, honestly, I honestly think that um, this is like where the trouble comes in now. But I honestly believe in, in my heart of hearts, this issue is really debatable. Mm. And, and I don't think that, um, I, I, I really think that it is something that needs to be looked into. Because mm-hmm. even within within I'm talking about Sunni theology. See right. in Shia yeah. theology this no is question. a done this yeah. is a done deal. In Sunni theology, I think it's an issue that needs to be to be revisited and consider the you know what? Maybe there is something there. Maybe there is something there. Because because to me, I cannot see how the Prophet wasallam would say this is haram, but it's halal for right now. Because ultimately, what they're saying is that it was haram, it was halal mm. for a while, and then it was deemed to be haram, and then it was made halal again, and then it was declared to be haram. To, to me, I'm I'm not sure about. I am really not sure, and and I'm just talking about. I'm just talking about my my own, you know, beliefs regarding this issue, after really really considering it. So part of sexology is looking into these into these, you know, into these issues. But it's something that needs to be revisited. Got it. Okay, inshallah. Like there, there, there might be a room in Islamic jurisprudence for, for this. 
So I just got your fatwa on the validity <laughs> of muta in Islam. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very Sunni sure Islam. that the listeners, that's not what they heard. No, I'm just kidding. The, the listeners heard <laughs> that this is something that needs to be revisited with, with the hopes that Islamic jurisprudence can potentially accommodate accommodate this. Got it. Jazakallah khair. Then any final thoughts before we wrap up? Because we're at the top of the hour here. We did, we, we're good. It was a pleasure talking to you. And, Jazakallah you khair know. likewise. Hayakallah. Yep. We'll see you next time, Sheikh. I appreciate your time for our... We did a second session during this uh, retreat to Memphis. So Alhamdulillah. I appreciate your time. Pleasure was all ours. Thank Hayakallah. you for coming. Jazakallah khair. Assalamu alaikum.